Hi, welcome to episode 5 of the Illusions Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Lauer. And this episode will start on chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we get to meet the characters of the book. One of the main characters is Richard, who is is an autobiographical representation of Richard Bach, who wrote the book. And the other is the reluctant messiah himself, Donald Shimoda. The idea... Uh, for the book is similar to the way Richard introduced how he came about writing this book, where he was flying his old plane out in sort of the Midwest and offering rides for $3 a piece, $3 for 10 minutes up in the air, and finding many takers in the small towns in the Midwest that he was visiting. This episode will be quite a bit more reading through initially as we begin in chapter 2. Quite a bit more reading through than you had in chapter 1. And even though I'm not a professional reader per se, I'm going to do my best to make this a lot of fun for both of us. How about that? Okay, so we'll start chapter 2. It says, It was toward the middle of the summer that I met Donald Shimoda. In four years flying, I'd never found another pilot in the line of work I do. Flying with the wind from town to town, selling rides in an old biplane. Three dollars for ten minutes in the air. But one day, just north of Ferris, Illinois, I looked down from the cockpit of my fleet, and there was an old Traveler 4000, gold and white, landed pretty as you please in the lemon emerald hay. Mine's a free life, but it does get lonely sometimes. I saw the biplane there, thought about it for a few seconds, and decided it would do no harm to drop in. Brottle back to idle, a full rudder slip, and the fleet and I fell sideways toward the ground. Wind in the flying wires, that gentle good sound, the slow puck, puck, puck of the old engine loafing its propeller around. Goggles up to better watch the landing. Cornstalks a green leaf jungle, swishing close below, flicker of a fence, and then just cut hay as far as I could see. Sticking rudder out of the slip, a nice little roundabout above the land, hay brushing the tires, then the familiar calm crashing rattle of hard ground under wheel. Slowing, slowing, and now a quick burst of noise and power to taxi beside the other plane and stop. Throttle back, switch off the soft clack-clack of the propellers spinning down to stop in the total quiet of July. The pilot of the Traveler sat in the hay, his back against the left wheel of his airplane, and he watched me. For half a minute I watched him, too, looking at the mystery of his calm. I wouldn't have been so cool just to sit there and watch another plane land in a field with me and park ten yards away. I nodded, liking him without knowing why. You looked lonely, I said across the distance between us. So did you. Didn't mean to bother you. If I'm one too many, I'll be on my way. No, I've been waiting for you. I smiled at that. Sorry I'm late. That's all right. I pulled off my helmet and goggles, climbed out of the cockpit, and stepped to the ground. This feels good when you've been a couple hours in the fleet. Hope you don't mind ham and cheese, he said. Ham and cheese and maybe an ant. No handshake, no introduction of any kind. He was not a large man. Hair to his shoulders, blacker than the rubber of the tire he leaned against. Eyes dark as hawk's eyes, the kind I like in a friend, and in anyone else make me uncomfortable indeed. 
He could have been a karate master on his way to some quietly violent demonstration. I accepted the sandwich and a thermos cup of water. Who are you anyway? I said. Years I've been hopping rides, never seen another barnstormer out in the fields. Not much else I'm fit to do, he said, happily enough. A little mechanicking, welding, roughneck a bit, skinning cats. I stay in one place too long, I get problems. So I made the airplane, and now I'm in the barnstorming business. What kind of cat? I've been mad for diesel tractors since I was a kid. D8s, D9s, just for a little while in Ohio. D9s, big as a house. Double compound, low gear. Can they really push a mountain? Well, there are better ways of moving mountains, he said with a smile that lasted for maybe a tenth of a second. And I'm going to go ahead and interrupt right there because I absolutely love that idea. Number one, uh, I want to point out that Skin and Cats has to do with running, operating, maintaining diesel train engines and many times other diesel engines on very large machinery. But I love this scene at the end that I just read. D9 is big as a house. Double compound, low gear. Can they really push a mountain? And Don Shimoda answers with, there are better ways of moving mountains, he said. That is the kind of thing that on first read, it's really easy just to pass right by and not realize that the reluctant messiah Don Shimoda has just taught something very profound. And it's kind of reminiscent, if you know the New Testament in the Bible, there's a point where Jesus says, if your faith is only as big as a mustard seed, if you have the tiniest little amount of faith, you can say to this mountain, be moved into the sea, and it will be. And a lot of people have taken that quite literally over the years and used that as an excuse not to believe the Bible because they say, well, that can't be done. Even if you've got a small little mustard seed amount of faith, that can't be done. You can't just say to that mountain, move over there, and it moves. And what they have done, without even realizing it, what they have done is to prove their own point because they have proven their faith. They don't have faith in the ability to move mountains. They've got faith in the idea that they can't. And like Henry Ford once said, well, if you think you can or you think you can't, either way you're right. So the people who say that you can't just look at the mountain and say be moved and have the mountain move, they have actually proven their own faith without even realizing it. And I think that brings up the larger point that we need to be really careful with the words we use, since the words we use tend to bring about our reality. Whether that's just in our way of thinking that then filters how we see and approach everything, or if you believe in the law of attraction and, you know, they say that, you know, just hold this thought in your mind, say something over and over and over, with repeat your mantra, and create your reality. To a degree, I think that's true, and I agree with it. I don't think it is as simple as some of the so-called gurus and some of the shysters and fly-by-night people would have us believe. But I do think it's important for us to honestly recognize the idea that even with a D9 diesel engine, big as a house, double compound, low gear, that can really push a mountain, that there are far better ways of moving those mountains as Don Shimoda has said. Uh, so now back to the text. 
I leaned for a minute against the lower wing of his plane, watching him. The trick of the light, it was hard to look at the man closely. As if there were a light around his head, fading the background of faint, misty silver. And the very first time I read that, I thought, man, this Richard Bach is painting the picture that this Don Shimoda is a Jesus-like character. If you look back at the Renaissance Renaissance paintings that depicted Jesus, he frequently was shown with um, sort of a, a shimmery, silvery, light, wispy disc around his head, sort of indicating his divinity. And that's kind of the picture that Richard has painted here. A trick of the light, it was hard to look at the man closely, as if there were a light around his head, fading the background of faint, misty silver. Something wrong, he asked. What kind of problems did you have? Oh, nothing much. I just like to keep moving these days, same as you. I took my sandwich and walked around his plane. It was a 1928 or 29 machine, and it was completely unscratched. Factories don't make airplanes as new as his was parked there in the hay. Twenty coats of hand-robed butyrate dope at least. Paint like a mirror pulled tight over the wooden ribs of the thing. Don, in old English gold leaf under the rim of his cockpit, and the registration on the map case said D.W. Shimoda. The instruments were new out-of-the-box original 1928 flight instruments. Varnished oak control stick and rudder bar, throttle, mixture, spark advance at the left. You never see spark advances anymore, even on the best restored antiques. No scratch anywhere. Not a scratch on the fabric, not a single streak of engine oil from the cowling, not a blade of straw on the floor of the cockpit as though his machine had not flown at all but instead had materialized on the spot through some time warp across half a century. I felt an odd, creepy cold on my neck. How long you been hopping passengers? I called across the plane to him. Oh, about a month now. Five weeks. He was lying. Five weeks in the fields and I don't care who you are. You've got dirt and oil on the plane and there's straw on the cockpit floor no matter what. But this machine... No oil on the windshield, no flying hay stains on the leading edges of the wings and tail. No bugs smashed on the propeller. That is not possible for an airplane flying through an Illinois summer. I studied the travel air another five minutes, and then I went back and sat down in the hay under the wing, facing the pilot. I wasn't afraid. I still liked the guy, but something was wrong. Why are you not telling me the truth? I have told you the truth, Richard, he said. The name is painted on my airplane, too. A person does not hop passengers for a month in a travel air without getting a little oil on the plane, my friend. A little dust? One patch in the fabric? Hay, for God's sakes, on the floor? He smiled calmly at me. There are some things you do not know. In that moment, he was a strange other planet person. I believe what he said, but I had no way of explaining his jewel airplane out in the summer hayfield. This is true, but someday I'll know them all. And then you can have my airplane, Donald, because I won't need it to fly. He looked at me with interest. He raised his black eyebrows. Oh, tell me. I was delighted someone wanted to hear my theory. 
People couldn't fly for a long time, I don't think, because they didn't think it was possible. So, of course, they didn't learn the first little principle of aerodynamics. I want to believe that there's another principle somewhere. We don't need airplanes to fly, or move through walls, or get to planets. We can learn how to do that without machines anywhere, if we want to. He half smiled seriously and nodded his head one time. And you think that you will learn what you wish to learn by hopping $3 rides out of hayfields. The only learning that's mattered is what I got on my own, doing what I want to do. There isn't, but if there were a soul on earth who could teach me more of what I want to know than my airplane can, and the sky, I'd be off right now to find him, or her. The dark eyes looked at me level. Don't you believe you're guided if you really want to learn this thing? I'm guided, yes. Isn't everyone? I've always felt something kind of watching over me, sort of. And you think you'll be led to a teacher who can help you? Well, if the teacher doesn't happen to be me, then yes. Maybe that's the way it happens, he said. And I love that, that little exchange right there. I love that thing. Richard says the only learning that's mattered is what I got on my own doing what I want to do. There isn't, but if there was a soul on earth who could teach me more of what I want to know than my airplane can and the sky, I'd be off right now to find him or her. I love that because he's recognizing that there is probably much more to learn, but right now in his mindset, which is very similar to ours too often, I think, his current circumstances, he's thinking, are probably the best teachers he's got. But I love the way Don Shimoda looks at him and then says, Don't you believe you're guided if you really want to learn this thing? And Richard says, Well, I'm guided, yes, isn't everyone? I've always felt something kind of watching over me, sort of. And Don Shimoda says, And you think you'll be led to a teacher who can help you. He doesn't ask a question, he states it as if he understands Richard's thinking. And then Richard, I think this is a statement that the character Richard makes that is enormously profound, but maybe not even realizing how profound it is. If the teacher doesn't happen to be me, yes. And then Shimoda answers simply, maybe that's the way it happens. And I think profoundly the character Richard indicates that He'll find a teacher or be guided to the right teacher or the right teacher will appear. You know, we've all heard that old thing. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I think profoundly, the character Richard recognizes that he will be his own teacher. That will come into play later in the book. and In fact, several times as Don Shimoda says things like, you chose this life for the lesson you wanted to remember and, and things like that. Not an exact quote, but kind of the idea of some things he's going to say. And I love the way Don answers. Maybe that's the way it happens. Acknowledging both ideas that maybe Richard will be his own best teacher, or maybe he will bring the best teacher or be guided to the best teacher. I just love the way Don acknowledges, kind of gently and quietly acknowledges all those possibilities. So picking back up with the text... A modern new pickup truck hushed down the road toward us. 
raising a thin brown fog of dust, and it stopped by the field. The door opened, an old man got out, and a girl of ten or so. The dust stayed in the air, it was that still. Selling rides, are you, said the man. The field was Donald Shimoda's discovery. I stayed quiet. Yes, sir, he said brightly. Feel like flying, do you, today? If I did, you cut any didos, turn any flip-flops with me up there? The man's eyes twinkled, watching to see if we knew him behind his country bumpkin talk. Will if you want, and won't if you don't. And you want the dear Lord's fortune, I suppose. Three dollars cash, sir, for nine, ten minutes in the air. That is thirty-three and one-third cents per minute, and worth it, most people tell me. It was an odd bystander feeling to sit there idle and listen to the way this fellow worked his trade. I liked what he said, all low-key. I had grown so used to my own way of selling rides. Guaranteed, ten degrees cooler upstairs, folks. Come on up where only the birds and angels fly. All this for three dollars only, a dozen quarters from your purser pocket. I had grown so used to my own way of selling rides that I've forgotten there might be another. Let me take another quick break and say, I think that is a beautiful statement. And not just true of the character Richard, but far too often true of all of us. And I imagine you'd agree that far too often we get so used to our own way of doing something, whatever that thing is, that it's easy to forget there might be another way or a better way or a more efficient way or a more direct way. And sometimes our way is the way we learned from some adult role model in our life or the way we learn maybe even the hard way and we've never been exposed to or never investigated a different reason to do it and you know what comes to mind is that you've probably heard that old story it's been told by just about every self-development guru and motivational speaker there is about the young married couple and the husband watched the wife every Sunday when it was she was going to do ham for dinner every Sunday, and she'd cut the ends off the ham and then put it in the pan, put it in the oven to bake, and they'd enjoy ham. And After a few Sundays, he looked at her and said, well, why do you cut the ends off the ham before you put it in the oven? And she said, I don't know, my mom did it, and this is how she taught me how to do it. And then he says, well, let's go ask your mom. So they call her mom, and they ask, mom, why did you cut the ends off the ham? before you put it in the oven. And the mom says, well, I don't know. This is the way grandma taught me. So they decided to call grandma and ask. And they called grandma and asked, hey, why do you cut the ends off the ham before you put it in the pan? And grandma said, well, my pan was too small. So I had to cut the ends off to make sure it fit. And every motivational speaker in the world and every self-development guru who's ever been on a stage has told that story as an example of how we very often learn a way of doing things and then we rarely question why we do things the way we do. We rarely stop and ask ourselves if there's another way. Or we rarely stop and ask ourselves, is there a better, more efficient, more effective way of doing this? Or even just different. Sometimes a way that we just might enjoy better than the way we're doing something now. And I love the way this statement is is just kind of eased into the text here. I had grown so used to my own way of selling rides, I had forgotten there might be another. So getting back to the book, 
There was a tension, flying and selling rides alone. I was used to it, but still it was there. If I don't fly passengers, I don't eat. Now, when I could sit back, not depending for my dinner on the outcome, I relaxed for once and watched. The girl stood back and watched, too. Blonde, brown-eyed, solemn-faced. She was here because her grandpa was. She did not want to fly. Most often it's the other way around, eager kids and cautious elders. But one gets a sense for these things when it's one's livelihood, and I knew that girl wouldn't fly with us if we waited all summer. Which one of you gentlemen, the man said. Shimoda poured himself a cup of water. Richard will fly you. I'm still on my lunch hour, unless you want to wait. No, sir, I'm ready to go. Can we fly over my farm? Sure, I said. Just point the way you want to go, sir. I dumped my bedroll and tool bag and cook pots from the front cockpit of the fleet, helped the man into the passenger seat and buckled him in. Then I slid down into the rear cockpit and fastened my own seatbelt. Give me a prop, will you, Don? Yep, he brought his water cup with him and stood by the propeller. What do you want? Hot and brakes. Pull it slow. The impulse will take it right out of your hand. Always when somebody pulls the fleet propeller, they pull it too fast, and for complicated reasons, the engine won't start. But this man pulled it around ever so slowly as though he had done it forever. The impulse springs snapped, sparks fired in the cylinders, and the old engine was running that easy. He walked back to his airplane, sat down, and began talking to the girl. In a great burst of raw horsepower and flying straw, the fleet was in the air, climbing through a hundred feet. If the engine quits now, we land in the corn. And then five hundred feet. Now and we can turn back and land in the hay. Now and it's the cow pasture west. Eight hundred feet in level, following this man's finger pointing through the wind southwest. Three minutes airborne and we circle the farmstead, barns the color of glowing coals, House of Ivory and a Sea of Mint, a garden in the back for food, sweet corn and lettuce and tomatoes all growing. The man in the front cockpit looked down through the air as we circled the farmhouse framed between the wings and through the flying wires of the fleet. A woman appeared on the porch below, white apron over blue dress, waving. The man waved back. They would talk later of how they could see each other so well across the sky. He looked back at me finally with a nod to say that was enough, thanks, and we could head back now. I flew a wide circle around Ferris to let the people know there was flying going on, and spiraled down over the hayfield to show them just where it was happening. As I slipped down the land, banked steeply over the corn, the travel air swept off the ground and turned at once toward the farm we had just left. I flew once with a five-ship circus, and for a moment it was that kind of busy feeling. One plane lifting off with passengers while another lands. We touched the ground with a gentle rumbling crash and rolled to the far end of the hay by the road. The engine stopped. The man unsnapped his safety belt. I helped him out. He took a wallet from his overalls and he counted the dollar bills, shaking his head. That's quite a ride, son. We think so. It's a good product we're selling. It's your friend that's selling. Oh? I'll say your friend could sell ashes to the devil, I'll wager, can't you now? Well, how can you say that? Well, the girl, of course. An airplane ride to my granddaughter, Sarah. As he spoke, he watched the travel air, a distant silver moat in the air, circling the farmhouse. 
He spoke as a calm man speaks, noting the dead twig in the yard has just sprouted blossoms and ripe apples. Since she's born, that girl's been wild to death about high places. Screams, just terrified. Sarah'd no more climb a tree than she'd stir hornet's bare hand. Won't climb the ladder to the loft, won't go up there if the flood was rising in, in the yard. The girl's a wonder with machines. Not too bad around animals, but heights? They are a caution to her, and there she is up in the air. He talked on about this and other special times. He remembered when the barnstormers used to come through Galesburg years ago. And Monmouth, flying two wingers, the same as we flew. But doing all kinds of crazy stunts with them. I watched the distant travel air get bigger, spiral down over the field in a bank steeper than I'd ever fly with a girl afraid of heights, slip over the corn and the fence and touch the hay in a three-point landing that was dazzling to watch. Donald Shimoda must have been flying for a good long while to land a travel air that way. The airplane rolled to a stop beside us, no extra power required, and the propeller clanked softly to stop. I looked closely. There were no bugs on the propeller, not so much as a single fly killed on that eight-foot blade. I sprang to help, unshackle the girl's safety belt, open the little front cockpit door for her, and showed her to where to step so her foot wouldn't go through the wing fabric. How'd you like that, I said. She didn't even know I spoke. Grandpa, I'm not afraid. I wasn't scared, honest. The house looked like a little toy, and Mom waved at me, and Don said I was scared just because I fell and died once, and I don't have to be afraid anymore. I'm going to be a pilot, Grandpa. I'm going to have an airplane and work on the engine myself, and fly everywhere and give rides. Can I do that? Shimoda smiled at the man and shrugged his shoulders. He told you you were going to be a pilot, did he, Sarah? No, but I am. I'm already good with engines, you know that. Well, you can talk about that with your mother. Time for us to be getting home. The two thanked us, and one walked, one ran to the pickup truck, both changed by what had happened in the field and in the sky. Two automobiles arrived, then another, and we had a noon rush of people who wanted to see Ferris from the air. We flew 12 or 13 flights as fast as we could get them off, and after that, I made a run to the station in town to get car gas for the fleet. Then a few passengers, a few more, and it was evening, and we flew solid back-to-back -back flights till sunset. The sign somewhere said population 200, and by dark I was thinking we had flown them all, and probably some out-of-towners as well. I forgot in the rush of flying to ask about Sarah and what Don had told her, whether he made up the story or if he thought it was true about dying. And every once in a while I watched his plane closely while passengers changed seats, not a mark on it. No oil drop anywhere, and he apparently flew to dodge the bugs that I had to wipe from my windshield every hour or two. There was just a little light in the sky when we quit. By the time I laid dry cornstalks in my tin stove, set them over with charcoal bricks, and lit the fire, it was full dark, the firelight throwing colors back from the airplanes parked close and from the golden straw about us. I peered into the grocery box. It's soup or stew or spaghettios, I said. Or pears or peaches. Want some hot peaches? No difference, he said mildly. Anything or nothing. Man, aren't you hungry? This has been a busy day. You haven't given me much to be hungry for unless that's good stew. 
I opened the stew can with my Swiss Air Officer's Escape and Invasion knife and did a similar job on the SpaghettiOs and popped both cans over the fire. My pockets were tight with cash. This was one of the pleasanter times out of day for me. I pulled the bills out and counted, not bothering much to fold them flat. It came to $147, and I figured in my head, which is not easy for me. That's, that's, let's see, four and carry the two, 49 flights today. Broke a $100 day, Don, just me and the fleet. You must have broke 200 easy. You fly mostly two at a time. Mostly, he said. About this teacher you're looking for, he said. I ain't looking for no teacher, I said. I'm counting money. I can go a week on this. That can be rained out cold for one solid week. He looked at me and smiled. Well, when you're done swimming in your money, he said, would you mind passing my stew? And there's a couple things in this in this chapter, and that's actually the end of chapter two. There's a couple things in here that I really, really like. One is the story of the granddaughter, Sarah, and how Don Shimoda talked to her about what was causing her current situation with her fear of heights being a fall in a, in a past life. Yes, in the book, that is a suggestion that Richard Bach believes in the normal or so-called typical idea of reincarnation as we understand it with a Western mindset, that we are a soul that is reborn through many lifetimes and we carry the traumas of past lives and the learning of past lives. And each life we either heal from traumas and learn new things and continue to elevate our consciousness until we reach a point of nirvana. Or we continue to suffer from those traumas and they just get worse and worse and worse each lifetime and our consciousness degrades and then we just continue to sink through the different levels of, of the reincarnation hierarchy, if you will. Again, I don't know that Richard Bach actually believes in reincarnation in that sense or more in the sense that is understood by, um, say, Buddhist thinkers, where reincarnation is not what's going on there, but rebirth through different phases of our lives. It still could be. And I, I know in my own life I have suffered some trauma as a child that even continues 40 or 50 years later to impact me now. And in some cases, that trauma was so significant that I have some some pretty strong phobias. Uh, for example, when I was two years old, I was uh, jumped on and hurt by my grandmother's large dog out in her backyard. And even to this day, large dogs leave me somewhat fearful and a little bit skittish, and I have to take control of myself when I'm around a large dog because that traumatic event when I was younger left such a strong impression on me that it still impacts me today. But in the book, I love the way Don Shimoda freed her from that anxiety and that fear, or that even the way it's depicted might even be a terror of heights. I love the way Don Shimoda frees her from that by suggesting that in a past life she fell to her death and that's the reason that she's afraid of heights now. And I think there's a lot of lessons in that idea for us. We just need to sort of mull them over a little bit and see what lessons we can extract for ourselves. But I love the end of the chapter and I'm a little bit disappointed in the character Richard 
he had been talking about his theory behind a teacher being guided to him or himself guiding himself to a teacher. And he's watched these miraculous events all day long. He's watched Don Shimoda fly his plane over and over and over, not even so much as a bug on the windshield. And he is now so focused in counting his money. He's so focused on being satisfied in the present with a can of SpaghettiOs and $147 in his pocket. He's so focused on being happy in that moment that all other considerations have gone by the wayside. I can almost palpably feel Don Shimoda not being angry, not being disappointed, but sort of recognizing, okay, he's just not ready yet to understand the lesson he's supposed to learn. Where Richard says, I ain't looking for no teacher, I'm counting money. And I can go a week on this, I can be rained out cold for one solid week. Don looked at me and smiled. When you're done swimming in your money, would you mind passing my stew? It's depicted in a way, Richard Bach tells that little piece, that tiny little scene, in a way that it's almost like a mirror to ourselves. If we would be angry with Richard, the character, at this point, we'll read into it that Don Shimoda is angry. If we would be disappointed, we can read into it that Don's disappointed, but that's not explicit. Neither of those is explicit there. What's in there, in my interpretation, because at this point in my development of my consciousness and my awareness, at this point in my spiritual maturity and on my spiritual journey, I've arrived at the point where I might be a little amused, yes, probably a little disappointed, but a little amused at Richard for uh, kind of losing focus on the big picture because he's gotten his instant gratification in this moment. That's the end of chapter two, my friends. If you're enjoying the show and you find some value in what I'm discussing with you, I would ask that you please share the show with a friend. Make sure you hit the subscribe button in whatever platform you're in so that you never miss either a regular episode or a bonus episode. If you would also, if you have one minute, just leave a rating and review in Apple Podcast or Google Podcast or Spotify or whatever other medium you're using for your podcast. The ratings and reviews will help me improve the show and ratings, good ratings will uh, help other people find the show and maybe we can all learn a little bit from Richard Bach. So until next time, my friends, bye for now.